I've had a good time watching the NBA Finals. I don't get to see all the games, but I've caught a few. It's not quite as much fun since the Thunder aren't playing, but I still enjoy watching them. There's such intensity. And you know, it's really kind of fun to watch. How do players react when they really score and do something great? When someone gets a rebound and there's that quick out pass and someone goes flying down the court and they throw it up and they slam it down. You know, what do they do? I mean, just jump up and down, beat their chest. I mean, give it a good fist pump. Every player reacts a little different. It's fun to watch. How do you choose to respond when you go down and do something great? I've been thinking about Coach Dean Smith, one of the all-time great basketball coaches in collegiate. He was phenomenal. You remember he passed away just a couple months ago here at the age of 83. He had Alzheimer's. But he was a great man. He was a great man of faith, a man who loved his church, who loved his Lord. He was involved in his church. He ran a very clean program. 96.6% of his students would graduate. That's just all but unheard of. No, he truly cared about his players and he tried to inspire them and help them to be great. When Michael Jordan was being inducted into the Hall of Fame, he said, you guys would never have had the opportunity to see a Michael Jordan play without Dean Smith. No, he was great. He loved his players. And he was a great coach with one of the highest winning percentages and he knew it was because of all these wonderful players he'd had a chance to work with. So when Dean Smith died, you know he left money in his will. He left money in his will so that every player who had played for him through his collegiate career, who had lettered, they all received $200 and a note that said, Have dinner on me. He loved them. He appreciated them. He wanted to say thank you. And that's a spirit, really, that he tried to create on his team. And he did it in a lot of different ways. You know, one of the things that you hear in basketball, all kinds of sports now, is senior night. When you come to the end of the season and the seniors are recognized, it was Dean Smith who started senior night. He came up with this idea that when it came to the end of the season, he was going to honor the seniors on his team. They had stuck around, they had played, they finished, they got their degree. And so when they started the game, the seniors were going to be playing on the court. It didn't matter if they were a second string or a third string. Nope, they were the starters. If he had six seniors, they all were on the floor. So they'd have the tip off and immediately the refs would go, that's a technical. Six guys on the floor. They didn't care. They knew. No senior sits on the bench to start the final game. He wanted to say, you're important. But he did something else I really liked. Whenever they went down the court and someone might get open in the corner and they'd make the pass and from the corner they'd shoot the three. Or if they go running down the court and someone throws up the pass so that you're right there to slam it down for a dunk. You didn't beat your chest. No, as soon as that play was done, you looked for the person who passed you the ball and you pointed at them. You're supposed to recognize somebody had been unselfish. Somebody got you the pass. Somebody gave you the pick so that you could score. You got the glory. You were great. And the way you celebrate, you point at the person who did it for you. 
Sometimes when you're trying to be the best, when you're trying to win, when you're trying to be number one and you're competitive, it sure is easy to forget the people who helped you. It is easy to forget how other people feel. It is so easy to focus only on yourself. That's what happened to James and John. In our scripture lesson this morning, we're reading how James and John came to Jesus and they said, will you do for us whatever we ask you to do? Now, you know, that kind of sounds like an eight-year-old. Like an eight-year-old coming to a parent. I I had my kids do this to me. An eight-year-old comes to you and says, will you do whatever I ask you to do? They ask that because they know that what they're about to ask you won't like. And so Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And they say, would you let one of us sit at the right hand and one at the left hand when you come into power? I mean, they could see it. They saw what was coming. The crowds were building. Jesus' popularity was getting bigger and bigger. No, what was happening was Jesus had healed the sick and the blind could see and the lame could walk and even a dead person was raised. No, they could see the popularity and they just believed he was going to form an army overthrow the Romans, that Jesus was going to be the next King David. They could see it coming. So they went to him and said, we want to be great too. We want to sit at your right hand and your left hand when you come into power, when this comes to pass. Now it's fascinating. We found this story in the book of Mark. And we believe Mark was the earliest gospel written. You will not find this story in the book of Luke. Nor will you find the story in the book of John. Surprise, surprise. But you do find it in the book of Matthew. But when Matthew tells us the story of these two disciples coming unabashedly asking for greatness, he softens it. And if you read the story in Matthew, it says, It is James and John's mother who comes to Jesus and says, Would you allow my sons to sit one at the right hand and one at the left hand? Scholars said this was so blatant in the way they did this, they kind of wanted to soften it a little bit. It doesn't seem as bad if your mom asks for your greatness than if you ask for your greatness. But they say, no, no, Mark probably had it right. Mark had it right. It was James and it was John who went to Jesus and they asked. What's fascinating is Jesus does not rebuke them for the request. He didn't get angry at them. He didn't tell them they were wrong for requesting that. No, what Jesus does, he asks them a question. He says, can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Now, they had muster a yes, but they didn't fully understand. Jesus was asking, are you willing to sacrifice, to give your all to God, even if it means your very life? Will you give your all to serve Christ and make a difference in this world? In the end, they would. And Jesus even said, I believe that you will. He never rebukes them for this desire to be great. Why? Because I believe Jesus does call us all to greatness. He never asks us to be lazy or enough to get by or second rate. He calls us all to be the best we can be, the person God created us to be, He calls us all to greatness. 
It was 40 years ago now. I was a young man, 20 years old, serving a little country church. Hadn't been to seminary. I hadn't graduated my undergraduate degree yet. And I didn't know about preaching, so I found a few preachers that I really liked, and I read the books they wrote that would help me learn a little theology and have something to preach. I told you about one of those was J. Wallace Hamilton. And one of the books he wrote was Ride the Wild Horses. He made the observation, he said, you know, we're all born with certain natural instincts, and those instincts can take you there, and they can also take you here. You've got to learn to ride the wild horses, these basic instincts you have. And he had a sermon I will never forget. It had a huge impact on me as I'm a young preacher just starting out, and the sermon was entitled, Drum Major Instincts. Because he would say, everybody wants to lead the parade. Everybody has a drum major instinct. You want to do well. You want to see your name on the diploma. Your name wants to be called out. You want to be the one who sings the solo. You want to be the one who gets the lead in the play. You want people to cheer you, to know your name. You want to feel great. He made an observation. He said, A drum major instinct enters into everything we do. We like to do something good, and we like to be praised for it. Most of us are not quite sure of ourselves or of our place in the esteem of others. We welcome praise because it reestablishes our self-esteem. It gives us a temporary lift over the low opinion we have of ourselves. The warm glow we feel when we hear ourselves applauded, when we see our names in print, it's vitamin A to our ego. Praise has never made anyone unhappy. We like it even when we know we don't deserve it. We like it, even when we don't believe it. And as someone has said, we dislike it only when we hear it bestowed too much on others. If a person can enjoy hearing his predecessor praised or his competitor complimented, then they qualify as an authority on the doctrine of sanctification. No, we all want to be praised to know that what we're doing is great. This last week, my wife Marsha had the opportunity to be up in Broomfield, Colorado for a day and to, to see our daughter Kelly and, and her, our son-in-law Andy and our four grandkids. And it was wonderful because that night, our four-year-old grandson Parker was playing t-ball. And so she got to go to his t-ball game. And you have to understand, you still had a whole lot of chaos going on. You got the two-year-old Millie running around and they got an eight-week-old puppy running around. But they're there at the ballpark to be watching and and Park's out there playing. But Marcia said, I, I could see he didn't seem to be happy. Something was wrong. Our son-in-law, Andy, he helps to coach on the team. And, and he was out there, and she saw that Andy was talking with Park. And when they got through, Andy came over to the stands to, to look through the screen and to see Marcia and Kelly and others and said, Park's not happy. He doesn't feel like you're watching him enough. Okay, okay, we got this. Marcia said, as soon as he said it, he walked away. She said, I lasered in on him. She said, I made sure he saw me. I just kept clapping and waving. She said, I felt a little crazy, but I wanted to make sure I was watching. Sure enough, when the game was over, he came over to the stand. And he said, Monty, I saw that you were watching me. Yes, yes, I was clapping for you. You hit three home runs. You were great. 
just kind of puffed out his chest. Thanks. Walked off. (laughs) It starts at a young age. The drum major instinct. We all want to know that we're noticed and what we do matters and it is important. Jesus never said that's bad. He never rebuked them for wanting to be great. That's why this morning I want to continue on with the sermon series called to greatness. Because we do believe that every person, no matter how young, no matter how old, no matter what you do, you can live a life of meaning and significance and God can use you to make a difference in this world. You're called to greatness. Jesus would say to these disciples here in this passage, He said, you know, the Gentiles, they lord it over you. He was referring to the Romans. The Romans try to act like they are so great and you were nothing. That's not going to be the way it is among us, he said. The greatest among you must be the servant of all. To be a servant does not mean someone who is lowly or unimportant or has no power. No, to be a servant... It simply means you see the needs of others. That you use your power, your wealth, your position to make a difference. It doesn't matter whether you're the preacher or the plumber or the president. You can use your position to say, just look at me. Or you can use your position to say, how can I serve and make a difference in this world? You see the difference in people all the time. It doesn't mean you have to be weak and poor and nobody. No, you be the best you can be. And then you use that power, that position, that wealth, whatever it might be, to be a servant. For the greatest of these must be the servant of all. Jesus tried to say, you're called to greatness. I want us to think about that this morning. Just two things I want to say. First of all, If you want to know how you're doing and being great, then ask yourself, when was the last time I was concerned about how somebody else felt? Do you ever think about how somebody else feels? Or are you just focusing on how you feel? Does somebody hurt my feelings? Am I happy? Am I getting what makes me feel good? Do you ever think about how somebody else feels? When John and James came to Jesus and said, could we sit one on the right hand and one on the left hand? they weren't worried how the rest of the disciples would feel. No, they were trying to scoop them. And we read how it made them all angry. Everybody got upset about it. No, they weren't worried about how the other disciples would feel. They didn't want the position so that they could do so much good. They wanted the position so they could sit by Jesus and know we must be important. We sit at the right hand and the left hand of the king. Do you ever think about how somebody else feels? I've told you one of the books I enjoyed reading was The Astronaut's Wives Club. It's written by Lily Capel, and it's a great book. It's great because I've read all these books about astronauts that talk about it from the man's point of view. This talks about the space race from the woman's point of view, the wives. And there's a story in there about Annie Glenn. You remember John Glenn's wife. She was a stutterer. She really hated being out in the public. She didn't want to be speaking out there because she struggled so much. But John Glenn, being an astronaut, that was tough, and it really got tough 
when John Glenn uh, was going to be the one to go up and be, orbit the earth for the first time in America. The Russians were ahead of us. I mean, Yuri Gagarin had already gone up into outer space, beat us. They had already had people circle the moon. They beat us. We finally got Alan Shepard up in a suborbital flight and then Gus Grissom in a suborbital flight. It wasn't until February the 20th, 1962, John Glenn would climb in that little rocket and go flying up and circle the earth three times. And he would talk about how he saw the sunset and sunrise four times that day. And he said, I saw the face of God. He was an incredibly brave man, a good man. When he landed, he was a Marine. He was singing on coming down. Oh, my goodness. When John Glenn got back, he was a hero. A hero like nobody had been since Lindbergh had flown the Atlantic so many years before. John Glenn was the hero. And they wanted to throw him a ticker tape parade there in New York and wanted him to come to Chicago and then going to be coming to Washington. And John Glenn said... I will come only if you invite the other six astronauts and their wives. I mean, we're all in this together. I happen to be chosen as the first person to orbit the earth. But we're all astronauts trying to get to the moon. I mean, if it's only me, how would they feel? They don't go. I don't go. If you go back and look at the pictures of this parade down the streets there in New York, you'll see seven convertibles. Not one. There were seven. And that's just the kind of event that Annie Glenn liked. Because she could sit there in the convertible beside her husband John in the midst of all this confetti and just wave. She didn't have to say a word. All she had to do was wave as they came down the streets. And they all went to New York and Chicago and Washington only because John Glenn said, they don't go, I don't go. Do you ever think about how somebody else is going to feel? What happens is, if you think about that, you don't just live for yourself. You see the needs of somebody else, the hurts, the hopes. And that's what enables you to serve. Jesus spent his whole ministry trying to get us to take our eyes off ourselves and to look around us. How does somebody else feel? Because if you do that, you're more open to serve. Secondly, if you want to be great, then live in gratitude for what Christ has done for you. Live in gratitude for what Christ has done for you. For James and John, in the early days, they just wanted to be great. How lucky were they to hook up with Jesus as they're moving on to greatness and he's going to overthrow the Romans. But then there was that night of the Last Supper and Jesus broke the bread and he took the wine. He gave them the cup. Can you drink the cup that I will drink? Are you willing to commit yourself to Christ to serve and to sacrifice in order to let God use you? They didn't fully understand that night. But then there was the crucifixion and the resurrection. And on the other side, they would remember. They would remember what Christ had done for them. How they felt forgiveness. How they felt loved and affirmed. 
and how they felt a call now to go out and live a life that is significant, that means something. And that's why the early church would keep going back over and over again to celebrate that sacrament of Holy Communion. We will talk about the Eucharist. It's a Greek word that literally means thanksgiving. You come to take communion, so you give thanks. You give thanks for what Christ has done for you, that you are forgiven, that you are affirmed, that you are called to greatness. When you live in a spirit of gratitude for what Christ has done for you, it'll change the way you look at your life. It'll change the way that you look at the things that happen to you when there's success or there are challenges. You'll look at them differently and be grateful for life. You will look at others and you'll care about them. You will see how they feel. It'll change the way you live. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I, I was telling you about the NFL draft, the football draft. And I told you about this thing of called Mr. Irrelevant. The idea that when you're the last person chosen in the draft, you are given the nickname Mr. Irrelevant. We talked about that and how, you know, most of the time, whoever's chosen last in the draft, you don't make it onto a team in the NFL. You usually get cut. But when they started this program, Mr. Irrelevant, they did it because they wanted to say where you're drafted is irrelevant. You've been drafted. So give thanks. Give thanks for the opportunity that is yours. Be your best. Because you're not irrelevant. You've been given an opportunity. You've been drafted. Give thanks. Be your best. When I got through with that, I, it was kind of interesting. I was standing outside. I, I love visiting with people and they come by and so many of you came by and said, Bob, has a Mr. Irrelevant ever made it into the NFL? I got asked that question repeatedly. And so I want to tell you the answer is yes. As a matter of fact, they have. This program was started in 1976. 1976 was the first time they named Mr. Irrelevant. It was in 1983. Bill Parcells was the new coach uh, of the Giants, the New York Giants. They were horrible. Last place. They got Bill Parcells, and because they were so bad, um, they'd gone through the draft, and now they actually had the last choice in the draft. It went 12 rounds in those days, number 335. And Pete Rozelle, who was the commissioner in the NFL, called Parcells and the Giants and said, you get the last pick this year, choose well. We've started this new program, Mr. Irrelevant. This person is going to get lots of publicity. And so they're going to represent your team. They represent the NFL. Could you choose well? He called them repeatedly until finally Bill said, we got it. We got it. We're going to choose well. And so it was, number 335, John Tuggle. He was chosen. He played at Cal, University of California. He was a running back. He was a great guy. It turned out that he was a man of faith. He was a Christian. He was someone who had an incredible drive to be the best he could be and wanted to make the team. So he was chosen. He found out he's Mr. Irrelevant. He went out to Newport. They celebrated the week. He did it all in good spirit, laughing at himself and what was going on, and yet also hearing, I'm going to try. When he came to the team, he was passionate. 
He was always in the weight room. He was in the weight room lifting and encouraging other players to lift. He talked to them about diet. He'd been so passionate about his health. There was something about the way that he was encouraging everybody there on the team and the intensity with which he played. It was during a preseason game with the Philadelphia Eagles that John Tuggle came all the way across the field and made this incredible tackle right in front of the, the Giants bench. And Bill Parcells leaned down and whispered into his helmet, Son, you can play on my team anytime you want. He made it. He is the first Mr. Irrelevant to ever make a team in the NFL, John Tuggle. He went through that season. He kept trying to inspire the team, being his best. He played great on special teams. Eleven games into the season, the running back got hurt, and John Tuggle became the starting running back the last five games of the season for the Giants. Chosen 335th in the draft and now starting. But the Eagles, I mean, but the uh, Giants really were horrible. That year they went 3, 12, and 1, and they were in last place. But John was chosen as special teams player of the year for the Giants. And the organization could see this guy has got potential. During the offseason, he worked so hard. They got ready to start the 1984 season. They showed up for camp, and the first thing they get is a physical. And they noticed a knot on his shoulder. Didn't know what it was. It wasn't really bothering him. But they decided to take it out. And what they found was a tumor. It was cancer. Aggressive. No one could wrap their mind around it. John said to people, look, I can sit here and cry about this. Or I can decide this is the first day of the rest of my life that I'm going to whip this thing. What people didn't know was the doctor had said, you probably have somewhere between six and 12 months to live. But John didn't take that. He started taking chemo. And the other thing he did was he kept showing up at the weight room. He didn't want to lose strength while taking chemo. And so instead feeling incredibly sick, he was there pumping iron just as strong as the other players, losing his hair, laughing about it with them. People were amazed at his spirit and how he was able to confront the struggle in his life. And he had such courage and there's something about his spirit that inspired them all. Well, it became obvious he wasn't going to make the season and play in the 1984 season. He still had a contract. The Giants didn't cut him. They kept him on the roster so they kept paying his salary, and he was there to inspire and encourage and kept training the best that he could. And that year, they actually did better. The Giants that year went uh, um, t- uh, 9 and 7. They got better. Came to the next offseason, he was working hard. When he came to the 1985 season, John just knew he'd be ready to begin. He said, my cancer's in remission. And the doctors kept saying, I don't think so. It's a miracle you're still alive. He kept saying, I'm going to be okay. He kept working out. But in 1985, he didn't play that season either. His contract finally ran out in February, but the Giants kept on paying his health insurance. And then it was after that season, they actually did pretty well that year. They went 10 and 6. They were getting better. But at the end of that year, they were getting ready for the 1986 season. Bill Parcells was in his office when someone told him, do you know John Tuggle has been out water skiing? You're kidding. Maybe he is getting better. Maybe he has licked this thing. 
And it was only a day or two later, there was a knock on his office door, and there stood John Tuggle, dressed in his beautiful black suit, black shine shoes, carrying a paper bag. He came in and sat it down on the desk, and then he said, Coach, I'd like to have a drink with you. Pulled out a bottle of champagne. He said, I want to have a toast. And they had a toast, and John said, I probably won't ever see you again. And I just wanted to say thank you. Thank you for all that you've done. And Bill Parcells said it was less than two weeks later, John Tuggle was dead. 25 years old. 25. He had made such an impact on the team through his spirit. The way that he had dealt with such adversity, the way that he encouraged all of the team, the way he gave his best, he was great. The 1986 season, the Giants painted number 38 on the back of every helmet. That was John Tuggle's number. All year long, they would talk about the man who would not quit, the man who gave everything, the man who had worked so hard and encouraged us all. 38, they brought him up every game. And that year, the Giants went 14-2. and two. They're considered one of the best football teams in the history of the NFL. And that year, the Giants won the Super Bowl. And John Tuggle was a part of that greatness. When you live in gratitude, when you live in gratitude for what Christ has done for you, it'll change the way that you'll look at life. When it's good, when it's difficult. You look at it different. And you see the needs and the feelings of others. It's not just all about me. I believe you and I, we're called to greatness. Just make sure it's true greatness that you're after. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.